Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Richard Florida, an urbanist and author of Rise of the Creative Class, a book which identifies the emergence of a new social class that is reshaping the 21st century's economy, geography, and workplace. Richard shares how his upbringing in New Jersey shaped his career and drove him to make sense of why some cities thrive and others don't. We also discuss how the pandemic and work from home era has caused a demographic reshuffling and which cities stand to benefit from it. Enjoy the conversation. Richard, well, thank you so much for joining. Uh, where are you zooming in from? Um, I, I'm, I'm zooming in from Toronto. Um, as you can see from my background, that giant thing is the CN Tower, and that's, the, that's an abstraction or a line drawing of the Toronto skyline. Nice. I like it. Um, well, can you just start by maybe giving people a bit of background on yourself and your works and your writings from kind of the rise of the creative class onward? Well, I mean, I think it starts with more of me than my work. I mean, my name's Rich Florida. Um, I was born in, I often say when my birth date gives everything away, I was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1957, uh, which means I was born into a very different kind of world. Uh, Newark was a functioning, thriving city. My dad worked at a factory. My dad was a factory worker in downtown Newark. When I got a little bit older, my mom was an ad taker at the major paper, the Newark Star-Ledger. Uh, I was born in North Newark, North Newark, which is the Italian-American neighborhood. Newark was very much the city Philip Roth writes about. Um, and then I observed it all go south. Um, my dad's factory where he worked, making eyeglasses, uh, went bankrupt. Newark exploded into race riots as a result of an incident of police brutality, as well as racial and economic injustice. I witnessed those personally as a 9 or 10 or 11-year-old boy. Not exactly sure of my exact age in summer of 1967. Um, we were, my dad was taking me to a guitar lesson. Um, we saw, we heard bullets flying. We saw tanks in the street. We saw National Guardsmen. Uh, they told us to turn our car around. And I think as a young boy, that's, that is what made me an urbanist. I think those questions about race and class and decline of cities and what we'd see called deindustrialization, the closure of factories, just lodged in my brain. Uh, then I went to Rutgers. My folks wanted me to do like be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, didn't interest me. And I took a course. I mean, to be, to make the long story short, I took a course in geography, my second semester freshman year when I decided to dump free medicine. And the professor who's still a professor at Rutgers said, go to New York city on the Amtrak train and go for a walk and kind of gave, gave us a, take a notebook and make notes about what you were seeing. And I saw, you know, the meatpacking district when it was a meatpacking district. I saw Chelsea when it was still, you know, not a very interesting uh, uh, gentrified neighborhood. I saw the village, you know, in all of its glory with punks and hippies and professors and academics. And I was like, hooked. Uh, so fast forward cycle to the late 1990s and early 2000s. I was living in Pittsburgh. I, I wrote a book called Rise of the Creative Class. I was living in Pittsburgh 
puzzling over why Silicon Valley and the Boston area and Austin and Seattle were taking off and Pittsburgh wasn't. I was teaching at Carnegie Mellon, which I came to know factually was every bit as productive in terms of research, patents, startup companies per capita per faculty member, but they were all leaving and moving to Silicon Valley or moving to Boston. And so the rise of the creative class was my attempt, a book, my trying to make sense of why some places thrive and why other places don't. And can you just walk through, like, what is that notion of the creative class? Like, how do, how do you define that? If you were to give a synopsis of that, like, what's that construct to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, before I wrote the book, if you looked at the field of urbanism or economic development, the general presumption in the field is that you grew by attracting big companies and you handed over kind of like the Amazon HQ2 search. You just handed over buckets of money or tax incentives to attract big companies. And I was looking at what's happening in Silicon Valley and Boston. And, and most people say, well, Oh no, no, we'll, we'll form a cluster. You're not realizing it takes, you know, a generation or two to build a cluster. And it just dawned upon me that it wasn't the decisions of companies that were really important in this new knowledge driven economy. It was the, decisions of people, that what was driving this new economy was where talented and creative people wanted to go to locate. And they were choosing to locate at that time in places like Silicon Valley or Boston. I watched our startups leave Pittsburgh, not because Pittsburgh wasn't a wonderful place or didn't have great technical talent or great professors or faculty members or graduate students, because people didn't want to live there. I mean, for rightly or wrongly, people preferred living in the Bay Area or Austin or Seattle. I thought wrongly, but that's what was happening. So the rise of the creative class was my attempt to say there were a new environment that was important to places growing. Um, and I boiled it down to three T's. I, I, you know, my mom always said the three R's, Richard, reading, writing, and arithmetic. You have to do those. So I said, yeah, I can make this, boil this down to a formula my mom will understand. Uh, you needed to have technology. Uh, you know, you need to have great companies and great R&D and great universities. But technology was a necessary but insufficient condition. I saw at Pittsburgh those people, those technologies leaving. Talent, that's where the idea of the creative class comes in. You needed to have a skilled group of people who could build companies and power your economy. And I saw them not just as scientists and techies, but scientists and techies and artists and musicians and people who use their minds, where the mind or your human creativity became the means of production. I call them the creative class. About a third of the workforce rapidly increasing. In fact, the increase begins in 1980, that group grows by about 20, 30, 40 million people. It's now about 50 million workers. It's a driving force of our economy. And in, in growth regions like the San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, Austin, it's probably 40 or 50% of the workforce. And then I said that you, you need technology and talent, but you also needed tolerance. Uh, you needed an open-minded environment who valued women and men, straight and gay, everyone equally, or at least gave everyone a shot. And uh, technology, talent, tolerance, when you put those three things together, you attracted the creative class, you had a, a growth machine, you had innovation, you had a region that would go. And yeah, yeah, I mean, everything else I wrote, nobody cared about, and that book seemed to catch fire for some reason. And when you think about that concept of like the creative class, and you think about what's afoot right now uh, as a function of both the, the pandemic, but also where we are with respect to workforces being able to virtualize and operate virtually, do you think that 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 notion of like this this mobile creative class that is kind of choosing cities do you think it just it's almost like that's put on steroids meaning we are going to see a rapid acceleration of cities pursuing a a creative class cohort to their cities right now because people can choose where they want to live more so than ever before 
So, yeah, I, I think what's interesting is the whole idea of growing an economy by attracting companies has been thrown out the window. I mean, companies are decreasing their footprint. They're not looking for new locations. So the whole name of the game now is attracting talent. And, and you know, cities are upping their efforts to attract remote workers. So I think in a world that's gone digital and virtual, where work is online, the competition now shifts, accelerates and shifts completely to attracting talent, no longer trying to attract more companies. It's just a losing game. It has been a losing game. Now it's a self-evidently losing game. I think, yeah, I, I've never seen an, a situation in which more people are thinking about moving. I mean, obviously the pandemic has caused all of us to become unmoored. Uh, it's caused all of us to change, all of us, particularly knowledge workers, professional workers, a creative class, you know, a third of the workforce, 50 million of us, to really think long and hard about how we want to live and work, to really think long and hard about our locations. I do not think it means the end of cities. I think cities will do just fine. I think New York City will do particularly fine. London, they've, London and New York have been through far worse, particularly London. I mean, it's been through, you know, world wars, bombings, blitzkriegs, the cholera epidemics. I mean, far more deadly. You know, the Spanish flu in London and New York were far more deadly than, as horrible as this is, far more deadly than this. They're incredibly resilient places, but I think it's going to shuffle the deck. And, and, and here's how I think it's going to shuffle the deck. I think you just separate this out into push and pull forces uh, that are going to act on cities. I think there'll be a pull force. And, and so people like me, I have little kids uh, who have little kids are going to be much more likely to move to more space. I mean, look, that's been true in America since I was a boy. My parents left Newark for a working class suburb called North Arlington, New Jersey in the early 1960s. That's nothing new. American schools are troubled. American cities are tough to live in. That's very, I live in Toronto. Much easier to raise a family here in Toronto than it is in nearly everybody I know. Everybody I know who has a family lives in the city of Toronto. Nobody that I know moves to the suburbs. We may live in a single family home, but we live in the city limits. Um, I think young people are going to massively move back to cities. I think what we've seen, a large part of the decampment from cities actually was young people moving, you know, leaving university, getting nervous, moving back home with mom and dad. Uh, if I was 25 years old, I'd be on the first plane, train, or car back to New York City or Los Angeles to San Francisco. I'm not going to stay in mom's basement or dad's basement, or I'm not going to live in a suburb. I want to be around great people. I want to be around great people to date, be friends with. I want to have lots to do, and I'm not that scared of the virus. So I think there'll be young people to cities, older people. And I think what's happened, and people make a big deal of this, what we've seen is the migration out of cities is people with families who are already considering leaving big cities who said, you know, oh God, I'm going to give it a year, two years. Those family formation moves have been compressed into two months and everyone makes a big deal of it, but that's what's going on. And uh, look, I think if we have this conversation in a year from now, I think this situation is going to be really different. And when you think about those push pull factors and this kind of demographic reshuffling, just looking at say the U S for example, like, do you think there are winner cities and loser cities? And I'm guessing the answer is yes, but like, how would you identify them? What would be a, a loser city in this demographic reshuffling? And what would be a winner city in this demographic reshuffling? So I think it really all depends. I think there can be winners and losers at every scale. Small city, medium-sized city, big city, urban, rural, suburban. And I think it really depends on how strategic and intentional and how much people act on this set of challenging uh, circumstances to position themselves to win the battle. Um, 
I'm much more confident in New York's ability to be resilient than I am San Francisco's. I'm, I'm frankly worried. I've been worried about San Francisco for the past five years. Housing was incredibly unaffordable. The city had become almost entirely gentrified. Uh, Middle-income people, low-income people were being pushed out. Uh, you know, the housing cost at the San Francisco metro is probably three to four times what it is in New York City. Not Manhattan, the New York City metro. Um, you know, look, there was a, a great essay written in 1961, the same time Jane Jacobs wrote her great book on cities, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, by a very nerdy economist named Benjamin Chinnitz. And in that, book, in that paper, he compared Pittsburgh and New York, and he said, Pittsburgh was, was, was going to be very troubled because it was a one industry, one technology town, where New York was a very resilient place with lots of entrepreneurs and lots of small business and lots of immigrants. Look, I, I worry that San Francisco, even though it's more physically beautiful and has more technologies, is much more like Pittsburgh or Detroit during the steel and auto eras than New York. So I'm really worried about it. Now, look, I think San Francisco has shown it can remake itself. It can hop from technology to technology. Uh, I'm less worried about Los Angeles. I think Los Angeles appeals to lots of people uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. It's a big city. It has good climate. It has all environmental issues too, but um, among small cities, um, I think a place I work a lot with, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, which has developed the world's best remote worker attraction called Tulsa Remote. I think smaller rural areas, rural areas outside of San Francisco, uh, rural areas outside of Denver, places that you're in Utah, parts of Utah, Montana, rural areas up the Hudson Valley, uh, that before all, remote work would have been hard to live winners. and work in. I think they're doing great. By the way, the place I might think that has the biggest upside, you're looking at it, Toronto. Right. Um, Toronto has an economic structure that looks a lot like New York. It has big banks, it has real estate, it has tech, it has media, it has entertainment, it has open immigration, it's a safe place to live, you can raise a family. The only problem with Toronto is it's expensive. So if you ask me, in North America, the place that's most poised to capitalize is probably Toronto. Wow, and, and how do you think that state taxes and differentials in state taxes will actually drive that migration. I mean, there's kind of an obvious point that you think people will probably move to lower tax states, right, where, where possible. But when you think about like a, a state like California and San Francisco obviously being in California, being the seat of this industry technology that is probably virtualizing the fastest and the most aggressively, do you think that there'll be a migration from San Francisco, from their kind of creative class, their knowledge workers to Texas, Florida? Who do you think captures and soaks up that growth? So I, I think that's something we have to unpack and unpack pretty carefully. Generally speaking, the academic literature by brilliant economists far better than me suggests that people do not move in, in large populations, the individuals move, but large population samples that tax rates have very marginal, if any, effect. In fact, there's a null effect. They're, they're, they find no effect of, of the effect of taxes on moving. Th that said, I think the issues in California aren't just taxes. I think the issues in San Francisco are unaffordability, uh, a climate that people are nervous about not being like there, you know, the tech lash, if you will, uh, people who I know left said it just got, you know, I don't like being considered a horrible person. So I'm, I'm moving somewhere else. Um, what we have tended to see over the past few years, and this goes with the elimination of the state and local tax deduction, is one set of moves that are, that are quite idiosyncratic. Mainly we've seen high net worth New Yorkers in the financial markets who are more mobile, 
move to South Florida, particularly Palm Beach and Miami, which would be the Miami metropolitan area. We have seen those network, high net worth moves. And if I look at the Miami real estate market and I have a, a condominium in Miami Beach where I go when it gets cold because Toronto gets ungodly cold. If you look at the Miami area market now, it's, it's houses in the eight figures that are selling and most other stuff isn't selling nearly as much. So, so yeah, high net worth New Yorkers who can game the system, right? So Miami has homesteading. You don't have to live there full time. You can declare Miami as your place of residence as long as you're outside of New York for 180 some days. Um, and so people who can work remotely. That said, Brendan, there's a very interesting data point that a student in my, we teach a virtual class in NYU where I'm a distinguished fellow as well as being a professor at the University of Toronto. We teach, I team, I am part of a team teaching group that teaches a virtual class to MIT at the Shack, NYU at the Shack Institute of Real Estate. And a student corrected me the other night when I mentioned that David Tepper moved from New Jersey to Miami, taking a $100 million chunk out of New Jersey's revenue base. And he said, Tepper moved back. Very interesting to me that somebody like Tepper who tried it out in South Florida, and, and he literally, I think he wrote or said to one of the, the New Jersey state legislators, uh, you're getting your money back. I'm moving back. And I think one of the challenges in South Florida, you and I can talk about is that South Florida is just a harder place. It, it, it doesn't have the infrastructure of, of an established city like New York or a place like New Jersey or Boston. Um, education's more difficult. Public education is more challenged. Private schools are further from urban centers. Public goods are harder to come by. It, it doesn't have the talent base of a New York or San Francisco. So I think what we've seen some high net worth people make the move mainly to South Florida. It, it's a move. It's something that cuts in different directions. And the jury's out about how much of that's going to stick. And how much do you think the, the move that I also hear about of people moving from San Francisco to Austin, Texas, how much of that do you think will stick? And the reason I ask is because Austin's obviously a much smaller town, right? And yeah, I think, I think you know, I, I began to study Austin uh, because George Kosmetsky, who's the critical person in, in Austin, actually left Carnegie Mellon. This is a, a great tale. Don't ever give ta deny talented people tenure. George Kosmetsky was denied tenure at Carnegie Mellon, moved to the University of Texas, became fabulously wealthy, and endowed a major institute called IC Squared, and really fueled the development of Austin as an entrepreneurial center. Anyway, Austin back in the 80s and 90s began to target Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley companies as relocation targets. And so this has been going on for a long time. Uh, yeah, you know, Austin has benefited from the fact that it has a robust startup ecosystem and is relatively inexpensive. The problem, I think, is that Austin, while attractive, is in the middle of a red state called Texas. And many of the people in the tech industry, rightly or wrongly, find that environment of Texas to be, you know, it's like some people like mountains and some people like lakes and some people like the opera. Some people just don't like red states. And, and, and so I think the problem with Austin is not Austin. It's the fact that there are a lot of people in the tech industry, particularly not necessarily CEO level talent, but the staff level people, the grounds foot soldiers who just say, I'm not going to move to Texas. And I mean, I hear this all the time from people I know who moved to Austin. Like, yeah, it's great, but oh my God, it's really hard to live in. Now, I like Texas. I have great friends in Austin, in Houston, in Dallas. I, I think they're all of those in San Antonio are great cities. But I, I, I don't think Austin is the one. If you ask me, the places that are much more likely to challenge, because we've done the, the research with a guy named Ian Hathaway, 
the places that have really shown a great boost in their startup ecosystems, aside from the Bay Area, New York, London, uh, to a lesser extent, Seattle, also similar to the Bay Area, also getting very expensive, Toronto, and then, of course, Chinese cities like Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, Austin still doesn't have that kind of – and also, you know, Miami at a, at a different level, uh, but Miami has its own challenges. So, yeah, I think Austin will do just fine, but, but it's not going to be the next Silicon Valley. It will be a very robust, medium-sized tech hub. And can you talk a little bit about your, your book, Who's Your City, right, where you kind of identify that cities are manifestations of kind of the, the dominant personality traits of, of their, their constituents, who makes them up. Um, how, how did you kind of think through that? And can you just walk through what are some of the cities that have these dominant personality traits that are identifiable? Well, I, I, this is really, per, like most things in my life, they're pretty personal. I was living in Pittsburgh. Uh, having a very successful book in the middle of a lot of controversies and began to think if I didn't live in Pittsburgh, where would I live? So I took out a napkin and started to write down the things I'd look for. Great research university, you know, excellent airport to get around and get the speaking engagements or whatever. Uh, place I am a cyclist, good cycling environment, interesting people, diverse. And that kept percolating in my head. And, you know, two books later, I decided to try to book, but who's your city? And to create a methodology, and the theme of that book says, you know, um, the place you choose to live is the single most important decision you'll make. And most people don't think of it that way. They don't pay it any attention. They just go where their friends are, their boyfriend or girlfriend is, where a job is. I said for the following reason, everything else in your life follows from where you live. The people you meet, the boyfriends and girlfriends are significant others you take, the places your kids go to school and their peer network, the universities you have access to, the kind of job and career network you have access to. I could go on depend on where you choose to live. So take it seriously. Who's your city? And I developed a, a thing called a place finder tool. I still use it in my classes. And yeah, yeah, you know, part of that is a personality. Certain cities are more traditional. Certain cities are more open-minded. Certain cities are more uh, neurotic. Certain cities are more stable. Yeah. And with a, there's a brilliant young uh, psychologist named Jason Renfro. He went to the University of Texas at Austin, got his PhD. He's now at Cambridge. He developed this idea of thinking about cities across these big five personality types, conscientious, diligent, open to experience, neurotic, and emotionally stable, and I don't know what else. But yeah, I worked with Jason, and we were able to group. The, the, the point of fact is that the people who drive innovation and entrepreneurship are almost exclusively open to experience. And what you find is that there are certain clusters of places within cities, like parts of lower Manhattan or parts of San Francisco or parts of Boston or parts of Austin, that are really, and the people most likely to move are open to experience people. So these clusters of open to experience people almost all the time coincide with centers of innovation or startup. And do you think that, you know, because of where we are, because of what 2020 has affected in people's lives, do you think that people are now making this more self-aware choice of like, where is my personality? Where are the things I care about? Where is that more congruent with what a city already is? And I guess the follow on question is, does that further polarize these differences in cities? Meaning if, if, all the people that are like-minded are moving to the same city, does it kind of almost further accelerate how different those cities are from one another with respect to their dominant personalities? Well, you know, Bill Bishop, another Austinite, wrote a book a long time ago called The Big Sort, who made this, I, this, this fundamental insight. 
that said, you know, what we're seeing in America is people sorting according to their economic status, their class position, their political and ideological orientation, their cultural norms. So, yeah, I think people are thinking longer and harder and, and thinking, but I don't think they're thinking about it logically. I think that people are still making quick draw knee jerk decisions. I want more space. I want a backyard. I need a place for my kids to do remote learning. I need a home office. I'll move here, there, or the other thing. I think the big change in the environment with virtual work is that people no longer are limited to the next over suburb. So let's take New York, for example. In the past, people would say, well, I can't buy enough space in Manhattan. It's too expensive. I'll go to New Jersey. I'll go to Westchester County. I'll go to Connecticut. Now those people can say, maybe I'll go to South Florida. Or maybe I'll consider Pittsburgh or Nashville or Austin. So the ability to work remotely gives people more choice. And I think the choice goes from the suburb close to the city I work in to smaller second and third tier cities. I think there are many, many people are saying, you know, and the other thing that's happened, certainly since I wrote Rise of the Creative Class, when I wrote Rise of the Creative Class, so I'm writing it in like the year 2000, 2001. New York, San Francisco, Boston, Austin, Seattle, we're on a different planet than places like Pittsburgh or Omaha or Nashville or Tulsa. They just had a different bundle of amenities, coffee shops, restaurants, stuff to do. Now I would say, generally speaking, I don't want to over make this point, but you know, you go to Tulsa, you go to Omaha, you go to any of these places, there are more independent restaurants, there are more independent coffee shops, there are more interesting chefs. I mean, Go try to find an independent coffee shop or, you know, even, even Danny Meyer said, given all the success he's had in the New York restaurant industry, it would be hard for him to start a new restaurant in New York City before the pandemic. It was so expensive. So I think that small second and third tier place, like Bentonville, Arkansas, where I do a lot of work, it's a fantastically interesting place to me and it would not have been so, you know, 20 years ago. So I think there's been a leveling up in the kind of amenities that are, that are, that you can find throughout you know, second and third tier, smaller and medium-sized cities across America, and then people go for it. And do you think that that also because of this new kind of virtual work environment, there'll also be kind of an emergence of a class of, uh, a portion of this creative class that is saying, I don't want to have just one home. Uh, I want my home or my, my place of residence to be multinodal. I want to have a house in New York, a house in Los Angeles, a house in South Florida, and kind of move fluidly through them. Do you think there's that kind of truly mobile lifestyle is now going to be a bigger thing. I've been saying this for the past 20 years to anyone, the multi-locational household will will rise. Um, I noticed the founders of Zillow have just created a new startup that's focused on what they call democratizing the second home market. It's a kind of newfangled timeshare. Look, I, I think there has been another constraint on this. Now, now, single people could always do this and empty nesters could always do this. I think the biggest factor tying people to place actually has not been work. It's been schools. And I think the big disruption coming out of this pandemic is not going to be online work. I think online work was already growing and it's just going to accelerate more than double in terms of the number of people who do it. I think the one that's going to break the locational constraint is, is, is untying schooling from location. And once it becomes clearer to people that they can educate their kids in some combination of virtual and physical, that's going to create more opportunity because people with kids have just been unwilling. 
And uh, that's why they've stayed. That's why they've stayed in some of the suburbs they live in. That's why they've stayed in some of the colder places that they are. That's why places like Silicon Valley are, are, are popular because there's good schools. Um, so I think it's not just virtual work. It's going to be online education that creates this possibility. And if that emerges over the next decade, I think you will see more multi-locational households. And I, yeah, I, I think it's something we got to keep an eye on. That's interesting to think about like education as being the last locationally rooting mechanism that, you know, is now going the same direction people, as everything. People say to me, I have little kids. My kids are three and four. People say to me, well, I understand you work virtually, but you can't. I mean, your kids need to be in a school. I mean, like, you know, it's like, I, I didn't ask your advice, but like you have to pick a place to live once you have kids and maybe you can go away for six weeks in the summer, but they have to be. I'm like, why? You know, we live in a fluid environment. I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but there is a possibility that kids can be educated remotely. Uh, or educated in multiple places. And I think what the pandemic is doing, what I see among cohorts of mine that have kids, for the first time in their lives, they're going, oh, I can work virtually. Oh, the school has closed down. I can create some kind of tutoring environment or pod school environment that's an alternative. And for American urbanites, I'm not saying that, because Toronto is very different. Our public schools are terrific. They're provincially funded. It's funded by our equivalent of a state. But for Americans who choose to live in urban areas and decide that they want to use private schools, that's a big nut. That's, you know, 60, 80, 100K a year uh, for two kids. There's a lot you could do with that money and, and creating a different educational environment. So, yeah, I, I think at the, now this is going to be something that starts at the very high affluent end of the spectrum. But yeah, I, I think, and it's also going to accentuate inequality, right? I mean, we're already seeing that with the current pandemic. Um, you know, there are kids who don't even have a tablet or an iPad or a computer to log into digital education. And there are other kids who have pod schools and tutors. So I think it's, it's going to loosen up the spatial constraints, locational constraints, but also I think you've talked about accentuate inequality. Well, Richard, thank you so much. It's always so interesting to talk to you about this, this new fluidity. Thank you, man. It's about to... Uh, reshuffle the deck in America and yeah, would love to continue the dialogue. So thanks for sharing your thoughts. It's a pleasure being with you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.